Turn to Romans chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 to 15. Hear these words of Paul as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the, in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is the word of the Lord. Paul states as his purpose for writing to the Romans this, his desire to share the gospel with them. It's littered throughout the, the opening first um, 16 verses or so in chapter 1. In that opening chapter, he tells them that he is a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle set apart for the preaching of the gospel. That's his calling. He lets them know that he is eager to preach the gospel to them. It's a passion of his. He informs them that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for he believes it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Why was he so eager to share the gospel with the Romans. Well, part of his reason was he was wanting to set up a mission outpost 
to Spain. Towards the end of his letter, he states that in chapter 15, verse 24, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So he wants them to support his missionary endeavors as he brings the gospel, the spread of the kingdom, to the people in Spain. Rome was to be kind of a, uh, a home base, a hub for the gospel labors of the great apostle Paul. Now, that means that this letter is very precious to us. And it's precious to us because it gives us insight into Paul's mind. Wouldn't you love to, to sit around a fireside with Paul and say, Paul, tell me what what the preaching of the gospel was like for you. What were the things that you emphasized? How did you do it? That's what he's doing in this letter. He gives us insight into what he communicated, the content, which we've talked a lot about, but also how he communicated the gospel, which is what we're going to talk about today, the title, Persuasive Paul. How did Paul approach the gospel? One thing that characterized his preaching was a tenacious and a persistent effort on his part as a preacher to persuade his hearers to believe. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17. The book of Acts is authored by the physician Luke, and, and Luke records what he observes. He's kind of, uh, he's, he's, uh, um, he follows Paul through his missionary journeys, and he takes note and records things that, that he observed about Paul and his preaching of the gospel. <clears throat> now remember what Paul is part of here, he was sent out by Jesus Christ, we're told in Acts chapter 1, to be a witness to Christ in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's to wait on the Holy Spirit to empower him to do this work, to fulfill his commission as a gospel preaching apostle. How does he do it? What does Luke pick up on when he observes Paul in the synagogues preaching? Well, this is what he says. Acts 17, verses 2 to 4. And Paul went in, as was his custom. So this is the regular practice of Paul, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, that's three Sundays, he had a three-part series. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He explained and explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is Christ. And some of them were persuaded by Paul. Look at the same chapter, Acts 17, verse 17. We see again Paul in the city of Athens. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. This is his practice. This is the how of him sharing the gospel. He's persuading and arguing 
and reason, reasoning and trying his hardest to convince them to believe. And then lastly, in chapter 18 of Acts, verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Right at the end of the book of Acts, which is a record of the evangelistic missionary efforts of the apostles, right at the end in, in Acts 28-23, we're told this, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning until evening he expounded to them, so he's explaining Scripture, testifying to them the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus. So, do you get the picture? He's got this message. He's got these people that he's to communicate to. We know that he's full of the Spirit. So, this is, this is apostolic, Holy Spirit-inspired preaching. He is burdened to convince them and to persuade them. He brings out every argument he has in his arsenal to do that very thing. He felt the weight of the moment. He knew what was at stake. He genuinely wanted his hearers to receive and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he especially wanted his brothers in the flesh, the Jews, to believe. Here are a few things that were written that Paul writes later on. We'll come to them in the book of Romans. Paul says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is part of this passion he has. It's stimulating him. He says, I bear witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and in unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Man, I would give everything up if just the Jews would believe the message. This is passionate gospel preaching at its finest. Now, <clears throat> why is that important for us to hear? Well, Paul had, Paul's confidence wasn't in his persuasive abilities. His confidence was in the power of God. He knew as he was engaging people with the gospel that God had to open their eyes to see in order to believe. He believed in the big doctrines of the sovereignty of God in salvation, which we believe as well. But I think there, there's a tendency that we've got to be careful about when we absorb and embrace the doctrine of God's sovereignty and His electing grace in our lives to feel almost restricted in how we proclaim and bear witness to the gospel. As if, if we're too persuasive, if we argue too hard, if we reason too much, we're denying God's sovereignty. Does Paul do that? 
No, absolutely not. So those two things can, and in, in the Bible, they often do fit together. So I want to warn you, um, when we think of the, the doctrine of Arminianism, which uh, gives much emphasis on human responsibility and neglects God's sovereignty. There is a, a pendulum swing. If, we, if we're coming out of a background where that was the case, we kind of move the pendulum too far to the other way, and we talk so much about the sovereignty of God and the electing purpose and the necessity of God to open our eyes that we're almost hesitant to call people, to reason with people, to seek to persuade people to believe. Now, I want to mention two books that if you struggle with this, and I think it is a common struggle among us, that may be very helpful to you. Because we've had some great Paul-like preachers in the Reformed faith. Charles Haddon Spurgeon being one, George Whitfield being another. Book one, great little book called Spurgeon and Hyper-Calvinism, The Battle for Gospel preaching. This is a must read if you struggle with these, how you reconcile these theological concepts. The second, a new book that just came out I think a year ago, is called Compel Them to Come In. So do you see? Just think of the title. Compel Them to Come In. Persuade Them to Believe. Compel Them to Come In. Calvinism and the Free Offer of the Gospel by a Scottish, modern Scottish theologian named Donald MacLeod. If you want further info on those books, just send me a text during the week and I can give you some information. Paul is seeking to persuade his hearers. Now, how does he do that? Wouldn't you love to know how, he, how does he unpack Scripture? How does he connect to the Jewish audience? When he's reasoning with them for three days, what are his arguments like? How does he get them to see what he's trying to teach them? Well, we have that right here. We have an example, kind of a, a case study of what Paul was doing. We're going to look at this text under two headings. First, know your audience. How does Paul relate to his hearers? And then secondly, his compelling argument. So, Paul knows his audience and he presents a compelling argument to them. Paul is a master at finding points of contact with whoever it is that he's speaking to with the gospel message. His approach to engaging and discussing and arguing and persuading others with the gospel is recorded for us in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And some of you are familiar with this passage. I think in some ways it's, it's abused and twisted. But nonetheless, Paul says something here that we need to take note of. Paul says, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. You see what his goal is. I'm trying to win them for the gospel. So I'm doing everything in my power to do that. I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He seeks to build bridges and inroads and points of connection where he can reason with them, grab their attention, and speak with authority 
to them. It's not a, a cookie cutter, one size fits all approach to gospel preaching. He tailors his message to strike at the heart of his hearers. Now, we all, we're not all the Apostle Paul, but we all do have a duty to share our faith with people. And here's the great thing. Your friends and your family are people that you already know, you already have points of contact with. Pray that God through His Holy Spirit, like He did with Paul, would enable you to tell them what is so special about Jesus Christ to you. How they can become righteous, how they can participate in the righteousness of God by faith apart from works. Now, what are some of the obstacles that he had to overcome with the Jews? Now, this may sound a little strange because we know that Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He is a Jew. He's a Pharisee, a great leader among the Jewish religious elite. But when he became a Christian, he got a bad reputation among the Jews. They believed and they, they spread these rumors throughout the Jewish Christian community and also the Jewish community that Paul had rejected their heritage. That he had trashed their beloved traditions, that he had disregarded their forefathers. In a very interesting passage in Acts chapter 21, Paul is visiting Jerusalem and he meets with the leaders of the Jerusalem church, primarily James. And James tells him something. James says, Paul, come here. We don't think that, that the church is going to listen to you because there's, they, they worry about you. They don't, you. You don't have credibility with them. James tells him that the Jewish Christians have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. So, the rumor, the obstacle Paul has to overcome in preaching the gospel in Rome to the Jews who he's addressing here, is they think that he has jettisoned the Old Testament. Now, that's a problem because who wrote the Old Testament? Who inspired the Old Testament? That's God. God. They believed that he was some peddler of a new religion, that he had abandoned Scripture, that he was a traitor. And therefore, uh, they were skeptical of him because they were so sensitive to these issues. Is Paul's gospel a wholesale rejection of our Jewish heritage. If it is, then he's rejecting God. If it is, he's rejecting truth. And we don't know if we want to hear this guy. So, how does he build bridges with them in this passage? Chapter 4, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? He speaks of Abraham. And then he says in verse 3, For what does the Scripture say? Oh, now he's speaking their language. He's built a bridge, something that they can connect with. He appeals to two of their key and beloved leaders in their history, Abraham, who was very key, and David. Now, what's the significance about, of Abraham? 
Well, Abraham was, as he says, their forefather. If you were to trace their, uh, their genealogy, their family tree back to its source of origin, it goes back to Abraham. Abraham is their forefather, as he mentions in verse 1. And as a result of their connection with Abraham, they also were recipients of all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant described in Genesis 12. And then David. Why appeal to David? Well, David was the prototypical king, a man of great spiritual depth, the sweet psalmist of Israel. A man after God's own heart. A man who had a degree of authority. So they appeal, he appeals to Abraham and David. This is how he reasons, how he persuades, how he builds bridges. And then he appeals to Scripture, as I've mentioned. The Old Testament Scripture to a Jew was the primary source of authority and truth. They highly esteemed it. It was greatly treasured. You remember what David writes in Psalm 19. The Scriptures are more to be desired than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings from the honeycomb. Jesus says to the Jews, again, uh, taking advantage of their commitment to Scripture, Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So the mention of Abraham and David and Scripture attracted the full attention and respect and credibility of the Jews. And that's right up Paul's alley. This is his background. It's interesting if you go back to uh, Acts 17, he kind of does the same thing with the Gentile world. He appeals to philosophers and to their religious practices, the, uh, the idol of the unknown God. He's trying to build bridges with them and then to bring them to truth. So, this is Paul making connections. The second point of the sermon is a compelling argument. What's he going to say? What do we learn from Abraham and David? Well, the heart of Paul's argument with the Jews is not that he is preaching something unique and new. His teaching and his ministry and his persuasive preaching of the gospel was to say to the Jews, you guys never understood Abraham or David or the Old Testament scriptures. You had it wrong the whole time. What I'm presenting to you is a right interpretation of the whole of the Old Testament, a true representation of our forefathers' beliefs. I am the true Jew, and I want you to be with me, Paul is saying. So what do we learn from Abraham and David? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. You start to see what Paul is, is trying to dispel, a belief he's trying to dispel. Is the Old Testament presentation of our relationship, our covenant with God? Is it like a, a work contract? If you do this, if you keep the law of Moses, if you sacrifice animals, if you're faithful to worship me, if you meet the dietary laws, if you do the purification rites, if you do this, then you get your payday. 
I will bless you. Look at verses 4 and 5. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, which is it? The Jews think it's like a work contract. Paul is preaching something quite different. Paul is saying it's a free gift. God gives righteousness even to hardened sinners who have no righteousness to present of their own. They're spiritually bankrupt. Jews had a hard time believing that message. They wanted it to be based on their works. Turn with me to uh, Romans 9. And here Paul lays it out there, uh, what the Jewish mindset that he is combating against, fighting against. In chapter 9, towards the end, verse 30, Paul says, What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness by the law have attained it? That is a righteousness that's by faith. So how can, the, how can these people be righteous with God? They didn't even try to keep the law of Moses. Verse 31, But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. That was the Jewish problem. They were approaching God based on the merit of their goodness, their law-keeping, their righteousness. When they hear Paul saying, there's a righteousness of God that comes apart from works, they, they want nothing to do with it. It strikes at the vitals of their own belief structure. Paul denies any righteousness by work. He promotes righteousness that is God's free gift to undeserved sinners through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the question. Here's the beauty of Paul's argument. He brings to the, the Jews, he says, okay, now what do Abraham and David think? Do they agree with you guys, or do they agree with my gospel? Let's go to the Scriptures, your source of authority, and let's ask your key leaders, and let's hear from them and see what they have to say. And it's a miracle. It just shows the blindness of the human heart that the Jews can have these Scriptures and miss what they're saying. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was a free gift to Abraham, not based on his works, but based on his acceptance of God's promise by faith. Now, you need to understand something about Abraham. Uh, the Jews tended to uh, 
polish up and make set their religious Old Testament leaders on a pedestal. But who was Abraham? We get a glimpse into Abraham in Joshua 24.2. Joshua 24.2 says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. We had a group of our children who have been brought up in the church, and they came forward for communicant membership today. They've been brought up in the faithful teaching and admonition of the Lord, not Abraham. Abraham was brought up in a community of idol worshipers. That's his background. That's his pedigree. So what can he do? He's already guilty according to Paul's argument in Romans 1. He's guilty of the crimes of the Gentile. How can he be made righteous? Paul says, not by his works because he's a sinner, but by faith. And then what about David? He mentions David in verse 6. Just as David also speaks, there's continuity between Abraham and David. David, and we've been preaching and teaching on David recently in a series we did on him. We know his sins, they're glaring and they're heinous. Adultery, lying, covering it up, murder. What does David say? How, how can this ungodly person be right with God? Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, credits to his account righteousness that is not his own, it's apart from works, blessed. And, and David writes these words after coming to a point of owning his sin with Bathsheba. That's the point of the psalm. Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, that's what we need to hear. That's what you need passionately preached to you week after week and after week. That God won't hold you accountable to your works, your sins, your secret faults, the weak and ugly motives of your heart. If you will embrace Christ, He'll take your sins for you to the cross. He'll pay the punishment for them. And in return, He will count His righteousness to you. He will credit your account with His pure, spotless, and undefiled righteousness. David says, you know, if it was by the law, I'm overwhelmed. I have no hope. But blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. I want to conclude with verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Why did you find Christ so appealing and attractive? Because He offers you something you can never gain for yourself. He offers to justify, to make, declare righteous the ungodly. The ungodly. That's the gospel that Paul presents 
persuasively, although he knows that nothing depends on him. It's all the power of God, the converting grace of the Spirit. But he is, he's not called to sovereignly regenerate. He was appointed as a gospel apostle not to regenerate their hearts, but to preach, to preach the gospel. And this is how he does it. Praise God. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we come before you. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see the glories of the grace of Jesus Christ. Help us. Uh, some of us have been Christians for many, many years, and maybe that, that joy of our salvation has worn off a little bit. Restore it to us like you did David when uh, he wrote these words that we read about. Oh Lord, may we know that although we are ungodly and deserve nothing from your hand, Yet because we embrace Christ as He has freely offered to us in the gospel, you have counted through that faith, through that belief, you have counted us righteous in your sight. Praise and honor and blessing be to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.